Stigma and discrimination experienced during adolescence can have lifelong health consequences. The LGBT community are at high risk for this. Data indicates the need to directly address the social influences that drive the behavior of this marginalization. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to Book Club on ReachMD. And today with me, our guest is Dr. Elijah Neelan, Assistant Professor of the Department of Social Work and Latino Community Practice at the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford, Connecticut. Dr. Neely, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, and thank you for inviting me. Dr. Neely has just published uh, the very thought-provoking book, Transgender, Children and Youth, Cultivating Pride and Joy with Families in Transition. To begin with, Dr. Neely, for all of us who are just becoming familiar with this field, could you define terms that we will be using, especially terms like affirm gender or gender identity? Yes, and I think that's often one of the most important starting points when we're working with young people or their families, is making sure that they understand some of the basic concepts and the differences between them. And so when I talk with young people and families, and in the book, when I talk about sex, I'm generally talking about biological sex. So our anatomy, our internal chromosomal makeup, and when I talk about gender identity, I'm talking about our own internal understanding or sense of who we are as a man, woman, boy, girl, both or neither. So sex about our biology, it's the first thing everyone wants to know when someone gives birth. It's the first thing the delivery doctor announces. Is it a boy or a girl? Though one out of about 2,000 births with an intersex condition. So even sex, not as binary as we tend to think of it. And gender identity, for most people, the sex that we're assigned at birth, we grow up and identify with that gender. That becomes our gender identity. But for transgender children and youth and adults, the sex that they're assigned at birth does not line up with the gender that they know themselves to be. So that's gender identity more about what's in our brains, in our minds. And when I use the language affirm gender, sometimes you'll hear people use identified gender, so sex assigned at birth as opposed to a trans person's identified gender. But recently, the term affirm gender has been used to recognize that it's the child, the young persons, the adults' affirmed understanding of themselves. And is this different than gender expression or even sexual preference? Yes. So definitely gender identity and gender expression, two different things. All of us as human beings have a gender identity. It may match the sex we were assigned at birth. It may not match. And we also have ways that we express that gender identity, our gender identity in the world. So clothing, the kind of clothes we wear, the colors that we wear, whether we wear jewelry or not, and on what body parts, tattoos that we have, hairstyles, ways that we walk, mannerisms, are all ways that we might express our masculinity, our femininity. We might be more androgynous in our gender expression. But gender expression really about how we express our gender identity in the world. And 
some uh, individuals who identify as male might express their gender in very stereotypically masculine ways. Some might express their masculinity in a bit more androgynous or not so stereotypically masculine ways. A guy that is in an urban area and identifies as metrosexual might express his masculinity in even a bit feminine ways, right? But but all of that's about how that particular man expresses his gender as a man and not a question of his identity as a man. And the term gender dysphoria, this is a broad diagnosis. Could you expand on it for me in its various presentations? It is a broad term. I mean, there's a very clear definition in some ways, at least a set of numerical items in the DSM-5. But in essence, gender dysphoria speaks to a level of distress. That's the dysphoria, a level of mental, emotional distress that an individual experiences around the ways that their gender identity does not line up with the sex they were assigned at birth or the gender that other people perceive them as, or their body and body parts do not line up or match their own gender identity. And what's distinctive in DSM-5 in that shift from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria is a recognition that not every transgender person necessarily has gender dysphoria, because dysphoria is really about a clinical level of distress. And so trans people who are living rich, productive lives may not at that point be experiencing that kind of clinical distress. Our program mainly is geared to physicians. Many of the physicians are, myself included, probably not well prepared to meet parents who come to us with what they perceive as some early identification or a firm gender problem in a child that may be very young. What can we do or are we doing enough to reach out to pediatricians or family practices? Because after all, this is the first professional that a family may turn to. And our medical school is doing enough. At the risk of being critical of a profession that I'm not part of, I, but really I think all of our professions, whether we're talking about the medical profession, medical education, nursing education, social workers, psychologists, in none of those disciplines are we really doing the work of educating those professionals that we need to be doing today. My understanding from talking to colleagues in medicine is that there are still really only a few medical programs that have begun to do this education. I've been invited in sometimes to do a guest class in medical schools and nursing schools where people have recognized the need, but sometimes medical professionals, healthcare professionals graduate with really very little education whatsoever. And I think you're right that pediatricians, when it comes to children, adolescents, often the frontline person that a parent will talk to when they think that something might not be right developmentally, right? Which is, which is in the case of sort of trans or gender diverse children would likely be a parent who experiences a young child, either preschool or elementary age, as having gender expression, gender interests that aren't considered normative for a boy or a girl. So a family with a six-year-old boy who likes playing with dolls, who likes playing dress-up, who likes to paint his nails, all that behavior that's considered more normatively in our culture feminine, at times parents worry about what does this mean? And is my child okay? So how do I give value to this pre-adolescent ideation? And I'm not inclined to say, well, it's just a phase. 
that the child is going through. When does it begin to say, this isn't a phase, this is something that I have to direct my attention to, and I can't deny what's going on in my family? Well, as someone who works with parents and who is a parent, I don't think we should ever deny what's going on in our family. And so in that sense, if I were the pediatrician or I were the therapist that that family was meeting with, I would say, yes, you should be paying attention to what's happening with your child, and it's good to be asking questions about this. I would also be clear that there is a range of ways boys and girls express their gender. And some boys, some men express their gender in more feminine ways, have more feminine interests. Some men like to crochet and knit, and they still identify as men. And that doesn't necessarily, those interests don't necessarily speak to their identity. And so it's possible that that six-year-old assigned a boy at birth simply has some feminine gender interests that may remain or may shift and change, like the interests of many kids do over time. One of the most important things in my work is helping families think about how to raise that young child in ways that are affirming and supportive and not shaming. Because the historical approach for that child, particularly for boy children with feminine gender interests, would have been a much more corrective, even punitive approach to shut down any kind of feminine gender expression and not allow it to continue. I read in the book about some of those children that I worked with where the treatment modality would have been to take away all girls' toys, all girls' clothes, anything that was, quote, girls' colors, no girl playmates, and continually reinforce only normative, stereotypical male activities, toys, interests, playmates. And what that does is communicate a subtle and sometimes overt message to that young child that who you are is not okay. And I think that speaks to the stigma that you mentioned at the very beginning and the high risks of that over time, that when we grow up with a sense that there's something wrong with who I am, that the fact that I like pink or that I like frilly things, that somehow there's something wrong with that, kids translate into there's something wrong with me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the ReachMD Book Club. I am your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Elijah Neely. And we're discussing his book, Transgender Children and Youth, Cultivating Pride and Joy with Families in Transition. And to come back to what you just said, these children, if they begin to feel this, are at risk. What are some of the risks when their identity is not affirmed in a support way? I've certainly worked with, and my guess is you have known of families with young children who did act out in ways that were self-harming. I have had some families bring six and seven-year-olds to me who were actively thinking about suicide. I talked with one mom recently who overheard her uh, young child assigned male at birth saying his prayers at night and asking God to take the boy away. And the mom realizing that that was sort of a death wish for her child and that getting her attention. And so even young children can feel desperate enough to be suicidal. And certainly as they reach puberty, which is another very high risk time and a time when many trans youth come out. And I can talk about that in a minute. But but as they reach puberty, the risks really increase in terms of self-harm, in terms of anxiety, depression, substance use to modulate feelings of shame and stigma, sexual acting out, all of those kind of high-risk adolescent behaviors come into play with a young person that has a sense of internalized shame or is experiencing stigma or ridicule or bullying. 
around who they are. So this is a critical time. Is this the time when you might begin to think about other modalities, the use of, say, blocking agents or coming out or making a social transition? Is this an indication that it is time to move on and be more, shall we say, aggressive? I don't know if that's the right word, but certainly more proactive in a social transition and using blocking agents, or if it's beyond that, using hormonal therapy. It could be, yes. When I'm working with a younger child, and I think about pediatricians working with a family and a young child, part of what I'm doing is coaching the parents on how to be affirming and supportive as we assess, watch, and see whether these gender-diverse interests expression continue to evolve simply as interests and expression, or whether they begin to be framed by the child themselves in an assertion about their identity. Now, sometimes that's already true when a family comes to see me. I've worked with families who bring in a four-year-old or a five-year-old and say to me, you know, as young as two or three, she was saying to us, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, why does everybody keep calling me a girl? And so in that case, those children as young as two to three, four years old were very clearly self-asserting a gender identity other than the sex they'd been assigned at birth. But other times, a family might have a four-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old whose gender expression is non-typical but is not saying directly that their gender identity is different. And when that's the case, part of what I do with families is work with the family, with the child, and we often take some time to assess that and see whether or not over time that child begins to assert a clear transgender identity. If the child's not self-asserting a trans identity, I wouldn't move to a social transition. In that sense, for me, it's the child's lead and the child's level of distress often about functioning in their birth assigned sex. Right. So I wouldn't be coaching a child to socially transition if they weren't asserting a gender identity other than their birth sex. But when I'm working with families where a young child, elementary age, adolescent is asserting a gender identity that's transgender and there's an increasing level of dysphoria, mental, emotional distress around that. Steps like socially transitioning, which means I begin to move through the world in my identified or affirmed gender, but there's no medical interventions yet. So I socially transition in the sense of coming out to people as Elijah, coming out to people as a boy. I might cut my hair. I might change the clothes I wear to school. So I socially transition in that sense, but there have been no medical interventions. And social transition can definitely reduce dysphoria because it means now as I move through the world, people are calling me by a name that fits and they're using pronouns that fit and they're acknowledging my own understanding of who I am. So that often significantly reduces dysphoria. Now, you mentioned in your book, as you transition to Elijah, you found less people staring at you, that when they couldn't recognize what or whom you were, you got a lot of what you call microaggression people looking at you peculiarly. But once people could identify you and you had found your place and they recognized you as a male, that how this changed, that this public perception of you really reduced some of the stress and anxiety you felt and probably the anxiety that the culture around you was feeling. 
Yes, and I, I think there's two pieces there. So for me, beginning to move through the world and having people acknowledge me as Elijah and as a man and Mr. Neely certainly reduced my own dysphoria greatly, my own internal distress greatly, because it felt like now people were seeing me for who I was. And when I wake up and look in the mirror or look at a photograph of me, I see myself in a way that I never was able to see myself before I transitioned. So that's my own internal experience of dysphoria. The other piece, I think, that gets played out in public is when we see someone in the world and it's not immediately clear whether they fit the male box or the female box. And so for me, moving through the world before transition, my gender expression was, I would say, fairly masculine. And I had short hair and I wore male clothes, even though biologically I had not yet transitioned. And what that meant at times was that when people saw this person in a suit and tie with short hair at the other end of a subway car, they weren't always sure what box I fit in. And I think that does make a lot of us uncomfortable, <laughs> that that fluidity or not being able to put someone in a box is almost harder for many people to deal with than having someone who identifies as transgender and transitions from one box to the other, like I did. And where that comes up in my work is that there's an increasing number of young people, adolescents, young adults, who are really critiquing the binary gender system and saying, you know, neither one of these boxes fit who I am, or they both, both boxes fit who I am. And I don't want to have to dress and act in stereotypically masculine or feminine ways. I don't even want to identify as a man or a woman if that does not reflect who I am accurately. And so we see language like gender queer, gender fluid, non-binary, emerging more and more in the adolescence and college-age students that I work with. And that, I think, is sometimes even harder for parents to grasp because we've grown up in a world where sex and gender not only seem synonymous, but they're clear. You're one or the other. You either or. You know, the media has changed how gays and lesbians are perceived. They are seen as successful, leading full lives, being parents. They're no longer a stereotype of a deviate or a criminal. Has the media done enough, or can they be more involved in the public perception of transgender people? Yes, I certainly think there's more the media can do, and that all too often the media may reflect the stereotypes, the negative stereotypes and myths that exist in our culture at large, such as transgender people are inherently mentally ill, they're inherently unstable, they're not capable of holding jobs or being parents or having rich, meaningful lives. That certainly the media many times reflects the stereotypes that exist in our world. At the same time, I think part of what we've watched in the last 25 years is more and more lesbian and gay people coming out. And one of the things we know from research studies is that the more familiarity, the more relationships a human being has with someone who's different than them, the less likely they are to hold on to prejudice or stereotype, right? Once I begin to know you as my neighbor and a human being and as a parent who has the same kind of struggles with their kids and same kind of feelings as I do, it's harder for me to otherize you or stigmatize you. And so, you know, I think we're at a place today in the United States States where almost everyone has someone in their social network who identifies as gay or lesbian. 
a coworker, a neighbor, a family member, a teacher, but we're not at that place yet in terms of everyone having someone that they know is transgender in their social network. And so for a lot of people, their information is still dependent on those negative stereotypes and images and not based on relationships that they have in their own lives. You know, this is very true of other groups that have been marginalized through America's history. Uh, I, reading your book, I know that the goals that really center on enabling families to create space, love, and support, and to allow these children and adolescents to live out their gender identity and expression freely without the shame and reproach and to feel authentic in themselves. I think that really kind of summarizes your book, which I really enjoyed, and I really appreciate you joining us today, and thank you for being with us. You're welcome. I encourage everyone, I mean everyone, to read this book. Whether you're a professional, a parent, a grandparent or not, we have so much to learn and so much to be aware of. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for realizing how important this conversation is. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard, and if you missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash book club to download this podcast and many others in this series. Thank you very much.